Welcome back to The Leader in the Clubhouse. I am your host, Jackson Sven. And today on the show, we have a really special episode for you because this isn't going to be your traditional US Open recap. This is gonna have a little twist to it because of course, we had a, a pretty unique US Open. So instead of recapping the action, I'm bringing on Rusty Harder from the Carolinas Golf Association. He's the Director of Rules and Competition at the Carolinas Golf Association, and he has a really unique perspective because not only is he the Director of Rules and Competition here at the CGA, he also interned at the 2004 US Open at Shinnecock Hills. So he has a unique perspective and just has some really great insight. So I really hope you enjoy this. But before we get into that, I wanna remind you about our great deal from our friends over at globalgolf.com. Right now, they're offering Leader in the Clubhouse listeners an additional 9% off of used golf clubs when you use our promo code LCClubhouse9 at checkout. That's an additional 9% on some already great deals. You can stack your coupons and you can upgrade your old gear and say hello to a goodbye. So head on over to globalgolf.com to save 9% on your used golf club purchases with promo code LCClubhouse9. Not only are you gonna save on new gear, but you'll also be supporting our show. So thanks for doing that. But now, let me welcome Rusty Harder. Thanks for joining me, Rusty. Thanks for having me, Jackson. So before we get talking about this year's US Open, because we have a lot to talk about, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about your role at the Carolinas Golf Association. For those listening that might not know exactly what a director of rules and competitions does on a daily basis. Can you can you walk us through that a little bit about your um, your daily routine? Yeah, so um, at the Carolinas Golf Association, I'm responsible for setting up and managing all of our men's, senior men's, super senior men's championships, all of their qualifiers, and all of their events associated with that. Um, so, you know, from start to finish, I'll select the site. <clears throat> select the dates we're playing, um, set the field sizes and everything based on the course we're at, you know, the, the facilities and stuff like that. And um, then, you know, as far as the rules side, you know, set up our hard cards, which is kind of our general rules of play for the entire um, tournament program, set up things like that, set up rule seminars for our general public, conduct those around the uh, Carolinas with the rest of our tournament staff. But uh, but the main thing is uh, setting up all of our men's, senior men's championships, uh, those qualifiers, and also USGA qualifiers um, in the Carolinas as well. So how does one get into rules officiating? Where where did it start for you? How did you get into this aspect of the game of golf? Well, I kind of uh, kind of fell into it. So growing up, I worked on a golf course all through high school and 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 in college, and I knew I wanted to work in sports in college at the time, and um, didn't really know necessarily what sports and ended up actually getting an internship at Shinnecock Hills in 2004 when it was last there on the operations uh, operations intern side. So I was there in 2004, saw kind of behind the scenes and that really got me, you know, I like the operations. I like behind the scenes of, of golf and of sporting events. So in 2005, the U.S. Open was back here in Pinehurst and uh, I was a championship intern again, kind of doing the same thing, operations and stuff like that. But it wasn't really anything rules of golf, anything course set up. It was strictly operations, kind of outside the rope stuff. And uh but I thought that was really neat. I really liked doing that. And in college I was looking for golf jobs, any kind of golf job I could find. And a tournament director job came up in Alabama back in two thousand six. And, you know, I read through it and I was like, there's a little bit of operations and it mentioned, you know, knowing the rules of golf and, and setting up tournaments and 
I was like, well, you know, I know how to play golf. I kind of know if I hit it in the water, you know, I drop here. If I hit it on the cart path, I can I can take it off the cart path. But that was about the extent of it. Um, applied for the job, got the job, you know, really wasn't qualified and fell right into it, running golf tournaments, learning the rules of golf. And, you know, they told me there I have to learn the rules of golf immediately and pick up on it. And I did that and kind of fell in love with it and really liked the, uh, you know, the rules themselves and, and setting up running golf tournaments. All right. Well, it sounds like you're extremely qualified then, I guess, uh, to talk about exactly what what we're here to talk about, which is kind of the controversy, I guess, that swirled around this weekend's U.S. Open at Shinnecock. So um, golfers know that rules are huge in golf. They're everything in golf. And self-regulation is really important in golf. And of course, the USGA is the governing body over rules of golf here in the United States. And the, this tournament, the U.S. Open, is probably the biggest their biggest tournament of the year, I guess, depends on who you're asking. But um, of course, the rules of golf can be complicated. And that's why we have people like you and other rules officials at golf courses for when we have a complicated situation that arises like we did this weekend. And so anyone that follows golf and even many that don't really follow golf know that we had a really unusual situation this weekend at the U.S. Open. And I even had you know, personal family members that aren't big golfers. They texted me to find out what my take was on the Phil Mickelson situation. And that's why I asked you to come on the show today. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe can we kind of walk through what happened on Saturday on the 13th green at Shinnecock and without getting too much into the ruling yet, just from what you could tell on TV, what, what did you see? What was your immediate reaction? Yeah. You know, I think what we all saw our immediate reaction was, did he just do what we think he did? You know, it was almost shock because I mean, you know, John Daly did it, I guess, in 1999. Kurt Triplett did something similar in, in the uh, early 90s. But, you know, in the in recent time, we've never seen in a professional golf event someone basically run across the green and hit their ball while it was moving, stop it, do whatever. So I think all of us, you know, and me included, I, you know, did he really just do that? What is he doing? What is he thinking? And, um, you know, that's that's what everybody was asking and kind of what, what you know, we saw online social media. That's what everybody was talking about. What was he doing? What was he thinking in that case? Do you have any idea, like what you, why you think Phil did that? I mean, I know we have his answer, uh, his answer after the round. But do you have any idea what might have been going through his mind? Was it frustration or embarrassment, or what? What did you think was going through his head? If you can't even say, I really think it was frustration in the in the moment. You know. Obviously, we know course setup, what was happening on that Saturday that, you know, some of the players were saying that the course was getting a little out of control. And I think he was probably feeling that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he knew once he hit that putt that, that you know, he had, he had basically hit it way too hard. And he knew it was going to continue to roll, continue to roll, roll off the green and back down into the little collection area. And I think it just, in the moment, it just snapped in him, you know. And, and he said after the round that, you know, I knew that rule was there and that, you know, I've been thinking about doing it for many years. But, you know, I think he kind of made that up to cover for, you know, just a snap and, you know, a snap decision he made just being frustrated. And, and uh, you know, I think there would have been a better thing play under stroke and distance instead of, you know, hitting a moving ball or deflecting it or whatever, you know, he in, he intentionally did in that case. But uh, but I, I certainly think it was just a frustration snap judgment situation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think some other things that have come out would – 
would uh, back that up. But so from a rules committee standpoint, like when something like this happens, what is the process for the rules committee? Because they said they they gathered and I don't know who that would be or or who gathers. Uh, what what happens when something like this I know I know it's un, almost unprecedented, but what happens immediately following this action in the tournament? So in a tournament at that level, you know, they have what they call referees walking with each group, and they're part of the rules committee, but then they have four or five main figureheads who are, who are also part of the rules committee. So probably what happened was the referee with that group radioed in. You know, they could see on TV, obviously, but the, the referee in the group radioed in and said, you know, I believe this just happened with Phil um, and alerted the rover on that side of the course, maybe on the back nine, who then went to Mike Davis and Jeff Hall and some of those other top officials. And probably what they did, whether they did it on the radio or got together in front of a TV, because they have the technology, they've got TVs and cameras everywhere. So they probably all mobilized, got together, looked at a TV, looked at what they ended up making the decision of what they thought he was doing at the time. So, you know, at our level in Carolina Golf Association Championships, you know, we don't have the TV luxury. We basically have to communicate by radio. And then if it's something that's really complicated, we'll get together one or two people, discuss the facts, what actually happened, maybe get with the player and talk to him in that case. But uh, but I'm sure it was Mike Davis, Jeff Hall, and, and some of those other USGA figureheads who were there making the decision and, and deciding – what actually happened in that situation. Now, do you, do you feel like they got it right? Based on the definition of a stroke, which as, when I saw it happen and talking to other people, I said the reason they're not disqualifying, because everyone, social media, everyone was saying he should be disqualified. He did that on purpose. He admitted he did it on purpose. But, you know, I, I said – they're going to say that he made a stroke at the ball because he took the club with the forward movement of the club. Now, do I agree that he was making a stroke at the ball? No, because, you know, when a, when a professional golfer is making a stroke, they go to a, through a whole routine. They have a whole setup. He ran up to the ball and just smacked it to stop it from rolling off the green. I don't think that was a stroke in that case. I think it was him deflecting the ball, kind of what everyone's talking about there. But looking at the strict definition of the stroke, the forward movement of the club with the intent of hitting the ball. Yeah, I guess that's what he did in that case. So that's what they stuck with. They didn't, they basically looked at the definition and it led them to rule 14 dash five and they didn't look at anything else. They didn't consider what he said. They didn't consider him running to the ball, to the green, um, to stop the ball. They just saw he made a forward movement of the club with the intent to hit the ball. What rule do we look at? Which is uh, striking a moving ball rule 14 dash five. Speaking of social media, there was a lot of talk about if this was someone else. Uh, imagine Sergio Garcia or John Rahm in this position that uh, it might have gone a different way. So can you say whether or not you think they showed favoritism towards Phil? Um, I, That's hard to say. You know, we would like to think that in this game that the player, the face, the name doesn't matter, that a ruling is based just on the facts of what a player has done. Um, you know, we, I made the comment that, you know, if this was a U.S. junior amateur championship and it's the second round and a player's playing poorly, he's not going to make the match play portion of the U.S. junior. And he does something like this and he's waxed his ball to keep it from rolling in the bunker, rolling in the hazard, something like that. Would they have immediately gone to 1 2 or 14 5? And I don't know the answer to that. I would think that, uh, 
based on what we looked at on TV, it looked like more of a one dash two issue, not a not a fourteen dash five issue. Okay. My I guess my biggest concern after watching it was that um, kind of like in basketball, when a bad call happens, the referees might uh, let something else go on the other side to kind of even things out. And so I was thinking now that if there was a second major breach of rules during the tournament, what do they do? Would they have let it slide? Like it would have it would have come up. Well, you let Phil do this, but um, I guess that's kind of it's hard to say, right? Yeah, well, that's a great thought, something I necessarily didn't consider. Like, you know, the Dustin Johnson scenario back in 2016, I believe, when when his ball rolled, you know, a millimeter. Um, obviously, they've adjusted the rules now to account for that. But if it was a situation where it was a very minute act where a player should have been penalized, would they have looked the other way or done something like that? It's something I haven't considered. But, uh, but it, you know, the game of golf is not – a lot of bang bang plays, especially in stroke play, you have a lot of time to to get the answer correct. So, so does it set a precedent for future championships? Is this something that we're going to see um, happening more? You think? You know, I, I read a lot of stuff where people said, you know, now you could potentially see these players, you know, basically running around playing cricket with the golf ball. But, you know, I think there was a, a better thing that Phil could have done. He could have let the ball continue to roll, come to rest and just taking a one-stroke penalty and played under certain distance. And, you know, he's a professional golfer, one of the best players in the history of golf. If you give him a second chance to make that putt, more than likely he's going to hit the hole or he's not going to putt it off the green. So I think that was a better option than necessarily taking a two-stroke penalty and whacking it back towards the hole. So you're saying, in a way, you don't buy uh, Phil's argument that it was a strategic play? No, I, I don't. You know, I just I don't see how running to a golf ball while it's moving and whacking it back towards the hole is really strategic. I mean, I know he's a great player, great short game, but, you know, that's a low percentage shot in my mind. This might be an opinionated or, you know, too too personal, but do you think this is going to tarnish Phil's legacy at all? No, you know, I've seen some things where people say, you know, he should have withdrawn, it's a disgrace and all that. And, no, I don't think it, it, it uh, tarnishes his legacy one bit. You know, it's kind of... What Phil does, he's kind of the all shucks, ho hum kind of guy, and you know, he did something that I think he did it out of frustration, and he came up with a a Phil type answer. You know, oh, I'm, you know, I knew I could do that, and you know, I saved me from having to go down and chip back up. So we'll leave Phil alone right there. I think that's enough talking about the Phil fiasco, if you will. Uh, we'll take a quick break. And when we get back, we will talk about the actual course conditions at Shinnecock Hills on Saturday. That was another topic of heated discussion. But before we do that, I want to remind you about our great deal with our friends over at LockLaces.com. LockLaces is offering our listeners 30% off all their purchases through their website, LockLaces.com. LockLaces provide a snug, comfortable, and non-slip fit, unattainable with traditional laces. If you've listened to the show in the past, you know that I prefer to walk when I'm playing golf and I also use lock laces on all my golf shoes and they're just way better than traditional laces. You can always get a perfect fit and when you use our promo code clubhouse at checkout, you'll save 30% off your purchase. So check them out. They're great for kids. They're great for older adults. They're really great for everybody. I put them on all my shoes, not just my golf shoes. So check them out. Locklaces.com. Use promo code clubhouse to save 30% on your purchase. Now let's get back to the combo with Rusty Harder from the Carolinas Golf Association. 
a lot of what you do, Rusty, uh, relates to course setup. So on Saturday, there was a lot of discussion of whether or not it was fair. And it seemed like they were really playing two different golf courses. There was a morning course, and then there was an afternoon course that was tougher and and firmer and bumpier and faster. Um, and for me personally, I feel like DJ got the worst of that, that he got a pretty unfair shake. That's my opinion on it. Um, and it, it just wasn't a fair position for him to be put in. So what did you think about the course setup? Was it, uh, was it too tough on Saturday? Were they trying to level the playing field? Is this something that the USGA might've intentionally done, but just kind of backtracked a little bit from all the push from all the uh, negative feedback? You know, I, in, in a golf tournament, you have players teeing off in the morning and players teeing off in the afternoon. And it's impossible to have the exact same conditions from the morning to the afternoon. Um, you know, it could rain in the morning and then not rain in the afternoon. It could be real windy and it could not be windy. But I think in this case, it wasn't the weather that changed. It was, you know, the course drastically changed. And I don't think that was their intent at all. I think, you know, they pushed such a fine line to make this a challenging test and different from what they get week to week on the PGA tour that, uh, that they just, it's such a razor sharp margin. And I think they just went a little too far and, and they admitted it afterwards. And, you know, they have so much technology at their hands that it almost might be too much that they're evaluating instead of, you know, just feeling it out and just setting up the golf course um, so that they're playing um, a competitive golf course, not necessarily trying to think about, the moisture in the greens, how much ball is going to release, how much anything's going to happen. Just um, let the course be what the course is and, and find the best player from there. So, you know, I think that they just, they push that edge as far as they possibly can and they leave themselves no margin for error and they're just with no margin on Saturday. It's, it's a hard call to make and this was going around, but would it have made sense or would it have been better to actually water the greens midday? You know, I think, you know, we saw it in 2004 at Shinnecock Hill that they did that, and I think that would have been probably the more prudent thing to do. I don't think they would have gotten the backlash from the players that they got. Mm -hmm. They may have gotten some backlash from media members and things like that, but um, in an effort to basically, you know, get the course back to the way it was playing that morning, I don't, I don't think it would have been an issue at all. You think we would have had a different outcome had that occurred? Yeah, potentially. As you mentioned, you know, Dustin really, you know, he was four under, I believe, going into the weekend. And, you know, you saw the stats that the afternoon was three to five shots harder than the morning. And um, that certainly probably had an effect on, on his weekend and how he played. Well, appreciate it. Um, one last thing I want to ask you before I let you go. A uh, little more local news. You were at the NC Amateur Championship this weekend. Is that right? Yeah, the North Carolina Amateur Championship. Yes, sir. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how it went, uh, how the tournament went? Well, it was uh, it was a great weekend. It was um, at River Landing in Wallace, North Carolina. They're very good to the to the Carolinas Golf Association. They're owned by the Murphy family, and uh, it was a challenging first two days. We had two stoppages for weather on Thursday and Friday. We didn't finish the first round until Friday morning. We didn't finish the second round until Saturday morning, but. Uh, but everything went well. Harrison Rhodes from Raleigh, North Carolina, an NC State golfer, he laughed the field. He won by 12 shots, uh, 18 under par. I'm sorry, 19 under par, which tied the all-time scoring record. 
On a related note, another NC State Wolfpack golfer won a Carolinas Golf Association Championship this weekend. Christian Salzar of Sumter, South Carolina, won the 46th South Carolina Amateur Match Play Championship at the Furman University Golf Club in Greenville, South Carolina. So big wins for NC State this weekend. And on the women's side, Emily Hawkins of Lexington, North Carolina, won the 22nd North Carolina Junior Girls Championship at Maple Chase Golf and Country Club in Winston-Salem, North Carolina this weekend. And just so we don't leave anyone out, I of course want to mention that Anna Redding won the 92nd Carolina's Women Amateur Championship at Green Valley Country Club in Greenville, South Carolina. Now that happened a couple weeks ago, but since we're talking with Rusty today and talking about all these great Carolina Golf Association champions, I of course wanted to mention Redding's win. Well, any final thoughts, I guess, about the U.S. Open? And maybe can you give uh, a grade for this year's U.S. Open? I, I enjoyed watching it. I know it was a crazy Saturday, and I do think some things happened that could have been better handled. But overall, um, we did kind of get what we want. Like I said, you know, with with the way the course was set up on Saturday, it leveled out the playing field, and we got a tighter cluster of scores on Sunday, which is really what you want from a spectator uh, point. We had more competition. You had more guys in there. And so overall, I had a great time watching. Um, and, of course, Brooks Kepka with the back-to-back U.S. Open wins. Hopefully that is the big takeaway from the 2018 U.S. Open, not, you know, the other stuff that happened because the back-to-back is just so awesome. He played great. You can't take anything away from how he played. Uh, he was tied with DJ going into Sunday, so obviously DJ had a chance. What what maybe is your biggest takeaway from the from the 2018 U.S. Open, and where would you rank this? Give it a grade, a, a grade um, A to, to F grade, and obviously it's not going to be an F, but how would, you, how would you rank it? You know, I think especially compared to the last few years where they had been to some new venues, they had gotten back to a traditional venue, one of the founding clubs of the United States Golf Association. And I think, um, you know, besides the little hiccup maybe that we saw Saturday, um, I think it was a great championship, and you know, I'd give it certainly a B um, for the overall, you know, the whole week and how they handled everything. I think it was great to get back to Shinnecock and have another uh, U.S. Open there. I completely agree. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Rusty. Hopefully we'll get you on, have many more chances to get you back on the show. Thanks, Jackson. Look forward to talking to you soon. So again, I want to give a huge shout out to Rusty Harder from the Carolinas Golf Association. Thanks for joining me. He had some great insight and great knowledge about the course and the tournament. So really happy to hear that. Of course, we'd like to hear what our listeners have to say. So you can find us at Twitter and Instagram at Clubhouse Cast, or you can find us on Facebook at Leader in the Clubhouse Podcast. But until next time, this is Jackson Sven reminding you to golf happy.